You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings, and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their fathers' houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before Yahweh. Six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs, and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And Yahweh said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings, one chief each day, for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab, of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate, whose weight was one hundred and thirty shekels, one silver basin of seventy shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of ten shekels, full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashan, the son of Aminadab. On the second day, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar, made an offering. He offered for his offering one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs, a year old. This was the offering of Nethanel, the son of Zuar. On the third day, Eliab, the son of Helon, the chief of the people of Zebulun, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, 
and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Eliab, the son of Helon. On the fourth day, Elazur, the son of Shadur, the chief of the people of Reuben, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a green offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elazur, the son of Shadur. On the fifth day, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, the chief of the people of Simeon. His offering was one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Shalumiel, the son of Zerushudai. On the sixth day, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, the chief of the people of Gad. His offering was one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them, full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels, full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs, a year old. This was the offering of Eliasaph, the son of Dul. On the seventh day, Elishama, the son of Amihud, the chief of the people of Ephraim. His offering was one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elishama, the son of Amihud. On the eighth day, Gamaliel, the son of Parazur, the chief of the people of Manasseh. His offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels, full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Gamaliel, the son of Petazur. On the ninth day, Abidan, the son of Gideonai, the chief of the people of Benjamin. His offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, 
one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Abidon, the son of Gideonai. On the tenth day, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, the chief of the people of Dan. His offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. On the eleventh day, Pagiel, the son of Ochran, the chief of the people of Asher. His offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels, full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Pejil, the son of Okran. On the twelfth day, Ahira, the son of Enan, the chief of the people of Naphtali. His offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Ahira, the son of Enan. This was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel, 12 silver plates, 12 silver basins, 12 golden dishes, each silver plate weighing 130 shekels and each basin 70, all the silver of the vessels, 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the twelve golden dishes full of incense, weighing ten shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold of the dishes being one hundred and twenty shekels, all the cattle for the burnt offering, twelve bulls, twelve rams, twelve male lambs a year old, with their grain offering, and twelve male goats for a sin offering, and all the cattle for the sacrifice of peace offerings, twenty-four bulls, the rams sixty, the male goats sixty, the male lambs a year old sixty. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with Yahweh, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. heart's headed in the right place But sometimes your past's hard to face But now I know you 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 623 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, May 21st, 2023, also known as my son John Lazarus Mullet's fifth birthday, which is super exciting. I don't know all of what we'll do today. I know he's got a gift coming. I know we're going to have some ice cream. Beyond that, we're going to church. And we'll probably just take it easy. Maybe we'll ask him. We'll ask him what he wants to do for his birthday. But in any event, we're very thankful. Regardless what we do, if we just take it easy, if we do something fun and special out and about, we are so very thankful for John Lazarus Mullet. He is freckled and funny and full of life and an ornery little five-year-old today. He is an ornery boy. But he is a joy to others, very similar in temperament to his older brother, Daniel. In fact, so similar are they that we will often call John, Johnuel, Johnuel and Daniel. And of course, John finds that delightful. But happy birthday to John. And we're so glad that you're a part of our family. And may the Lord bless you in the year ahead. Let's talk briefly about Numbers chapter 7. In this passage, we have a lot of repetition. It's a long chapter, a really, really long chapter. And you might find yourself, as you're reading it aloud, or if you are listening to somebody else read it aloud, you might find yourself feeling a little bit hypnotized, (laughs) like, I'm getting very sleepy, (laughs) What What is going on? Why the repetition? Why not just, for the sake of efficiency, at the very end, give me the summary? And I was thinking about this, even as I was reading it. I was just wondering to myself, why the repetition? Why the only variation that I perceive from one day to the next in this chapter? Uh, why the only variation being the names? The name of the chief of the people and what tribe? They are the chief of, and who is son of who? Why is that the only variation? And yet we have 89 verses, 89 verses in chapter seven. That's a lot of verses. And because I come to this text with the belief, with the conviction that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And because I know that Jesus only ever affirms and authenticates the Old Testament in the Gospels when he quotes the Old Testament, you might think to yourself, oh, you know, he undoes it, right? He says, oh, that's not for today, like we think. No, 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 that's not what Jesus does. When he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's clarifying. And he is, in some cases, dispelling the junk that has built up in the understanding of these passages and what they're really about. Generations of rabbinical tradition and argument and debate. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And the people, when they would hear Jesus teach, they marveled because he taught not like the teachers they were used to, not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all the rest, not like the Herodians. He taught as one with authority. 
And so when he spoke and he said, but I say to you, he was claiming authority to not just make an argument, but to give you a guarantee, to give you an assurance. This is the mind of God. This is what it means. This is what that law actually is saying and is actually not saying, as a matter of fact. You can extrapolate certain things from commands that are not explicitly said. Yes, you bet. Just like in Numbers chapter 7, you can speculate, perhaps, and if you give it generations and generation after generation continues speculating, then things can get a little bit carried away. The big idea here is not reading between the lines, but reading the lines. Each one of these chiefs of their tribes brought their offering to consecrate the altar. And lest you suppose, just given a total for the sake of time, because your time is so very precious, of course, of course, you got to save time to go amuse yourself here in the 21st century. Wouldn't want to steal you away from your favorite show that you binge watch on Netflix or your favorite video game or sports team. We wouldn't want to waste your precious time reading God's word. But then if you skipped down to verse 84 and all you got were the totals, you might think, I wonder if everybody contributed equally. Hmm. I wonder if, you might say, any of these tribes were wealthier than any of the other tribes. If you remembered the census that was taken of how many fighting men, how many men capable of going to war, going to battle there were in each tribe, you'll remember it was not the same amount. It wasn't uniform. There were actually some pretty significant variations that are due to, I am sure, how fruitful each of the tribes were generation over generation or how risky they were, but I repeat myself. And yet, if it entered your mind to think, maybe some of these tribes were wealthier and maybe the fair share would be greater from a particular tribe if it were wealthier than another tribe if it were poorer. And so, yes, we have the total, but we can't possibly know how much each tribe contributed, each chief offered in the way of an offering. Lest you might suppose something silly like that. And these days, nothing, nothing should be surprising to us. No amount of silliness should be surprising to us when people speculate, when they're given half a chance to speculate in support of redistribution of wealth and property and authority. Lest such a silly notion would enter your mind, it's explicitly, tirelessly repeated that each chief of each tribe offered the exact same offering for the consecration of the altar, the exact same offering. And then, of course, you get the total that represents an offering after a fashion from the whole people of Israel. It's actually a pretty amazing thing in a certain sense that despite pretty significant differences in the size of each of the tribes, the size of the offering is not bigger or smaller for some tribes here than for others. Doubtless, some tribes could have given more than others because they had more people. Doubtless. By the same rules of inequality that would govern one tribe being larger in number of fighting men, men able to go off to battle, 
by the same rules, you would expect some tribes would have more wherewithal to be able to give a contribution. And yet they give the exact same, the exact same amount. And I think that's significant. But moving on, Elon Musk shreds the laptop class. That interview that I played some audio for you from two episodes ago, where he is talking about George Soros and how he believes George Soros hates humanity. That same interview with CNBC, Musk was also asked about people coming back to work. And I'm going to play the audio for you from that part of the interview where he is asked about work from home and how he thinks it needs to come to an end. And in fact, he feels very strongly that the work from home nonsense needs to come to an end. People need to come back to the office. This will, in due time for this episode, dovetail nicely with a conversation about John Taylor Gatto's weapons of mass instruction. So stay tuned for that. If I lost you in the reading of Numbers chapter 7, well then, you're not listening (laughs) right now uh, for me to say what comes next. So I guess you should have stuck around. But those of you who are still here, stick around to the very end, and we will talk about John Taylor Gatto. But first, here's cut one, Elon Musk talking about the work from home thing. Look, I, I, I'm a big believer that, 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 that people need to are more productive when they're in person. Um, and, um, and, 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 and really, man, I, and the whole, the whole sort of work from home thing, it's like, I, I, I think it's, look, there are some exceptions, but I, I kind of think that, that the whole notion of work from home is, is a bit like the, you know, the, the, the fake Marie Antoinette quote, let them eat cake. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, it's like, really, you're going to work from home and you're going to make everyone else who made your car come work to the fa- work in the factory? You're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered, that they, they can't work from home? The, you know, the, the, the people that, that come fix your house, they, they can't work from home, but you can? Does that seem morally right? That's messed up. You see it as a moral issue? Yes. I mean, I see it more as and just it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a productivity issue, but yeah. it's also a moral issue. People should get off the goddamn moral high horse with the work from home bullshit. Um, because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. And yet there's there's still pushback, by the way. It's still going on. This battle is still happening. I mean, leaders of organizations, and I speak to plenty of them, I want people back. I want people back. Three days a week, they're still battling. Uh, It's not clear that it's ever going to change. People are not coming back five days a week. The the laptop class is living in la-la land, okay? As I said, the... You, you, you can't, but look at the cars. Are people working from, from home here? Of course not. Um, so, the, so the people were, were, you know, building cars, servicing the cars, uh, building houses, fixing houses, uh, making the food, um, making all the things that, they, that, that people consume. It's, it's messed up to assume that, 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 yes, they have to go to work, but you don't. How is that? that is, it's not just a productivity thing. I think it's morally, morally wrong. Although productivity is definitely impacted, too. And the ability of people yes, to learn I, I and, agree. I mean, on and on. Uh, listen, I... I so, I, I mean, look, you, but, you know, people will disagree with me about this, but I, you know, it's like... Um, so if you want to work at Tesla, you want to work at SpaceX, you want to work at Twitter, you've got to come into the office every day. Yes, I mean, you know, like, I'm not saying... Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying, like, look, put 40 hours in, you know, and, and frankly, it doesn't even need to be, like... 
you know, Monday through Friday, you know, you could work Monday through Thursday. And I'm also not saying no one should take, I mean, I think people should take vacations. Like, like I work seven days a week, but, but I, I'm not expecting others to do that. Um, How much sleep do you get, by the way? Uh, about six hours. You do? Six hours, typically? Yes. No, that's not bad. I thought it would be less. Uh, I've tried less, but uh, I, uh, my productivity, my, even though I'm awake more hours, I get less done. Okay. And, but you and, work and, and the brain pain level is bad if, is. if I get less than six hours. But you work seven days a week. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually only, um, in, in terms of actually, you say, like, how, how many days in a year do I not put in some meaningful amount of work? It's probably about two or three. Right. Two or three days. A year. Yeah. A year. Okay. So, first of all, me too with the whole six hours thing. If I sleep too much less than six hours, it really impacts my concentration, my enjoyment of life, my health. I get too many days like that and uh, it's just, it's not good. It's not so good. But six hours is perfect. Eight hours sleep, I have to be sick honestly, or just ex deeply exhausted. I have to have done something extraordinarily tiring to sleep eight hours, even seven hours. Seven hours is unusual for me, but five and a half to six hours, that's consistently my average. But I, I disagree with this whole uh, come into the office, come into the factory and work opinion. I, Elon Musk can have his opinion and he's a very successful uh, businessman, and I agree with him on a great many things, but I disagree with him on this. And I disagree with him on this for a couple of reasons. One, I've worked from home for the last couple of years. So as a SCADA uh, systems integrator with Chevron, I worked from home for the most part for a year. Now, it wasn't only from home. I started doing the systems integration thing for Chevron about the time that they were coming back to the office. In fact, I think it was the very week or the week after I started that they started coming back to the office. Corporate was saying, yep, have people come back for kind of a blended thing. We'll, we'll try it. We'll see what happens. And we'll have kind of a staggered back to the office uh, routine and schedule. And so I had a seven and seven schedule and my seven days on, about half of them were from the office and then the other half were working from home. And it was much better to have that blended schedule. Sometimes it is more productive to be able to go to the office and work alongside people because maybe they don't answer their email. Maybe they don't answer your text message. Maybe they don't get back with you in a timely manner unless you're standing right there and you can see that they're not doing anything else right now. They're just shooting the breeze. They're just goofing off. So I get that, right? I, I get that. But I also understand that working at the office, working right alongside a bunch of other people when you're doing very focus-intensive work like systems integration, it can be uh, very distracting. And so I like the blended schedule much better. Uh, I really do. I don't particularly like working from home, working remote by myself at my house uh, for weeks on end. I don't, I don't think that that is healthy uh, mentally, emotionally, professionally. I don't think that that is so good. But here's my perspective as somebody who was homeschooled and who's homeschooling uh, family 
<laughs> is big and also very social, uh, I say that there's something that is assumed here about what is normal that maybe we should look a little bit further back in history to verify before we just go on assuming uh, the normalcy of it. Uh, industrialization, factories being the primary drivers, the primary engines of productivity uh, here for the past couple of centuries in the West, uh, that's not been the rule. That's not been the norm for most of human history. And even in the United States of America, a lot of Americans' experience with working life has not been you're just stacked on top of other people, surrounded by people in some very compact office space or factory for most of your life. And Thomas Jefferson had some thoughts on this, which I would agree with, that American liberty, in order to endure, needed to be, to the greatest extent possible, agrarian. And that is to say, made up of farmers and ranchers, people who have their own place out in the country. And they raise their own food, and they raise food for other people too, absolutely, but they have their own property where they get to make their own choices. They don't have somebody standing over them all the time. Just like slavery does something to the psychological condition, if it's generational, multi-generational, and it's harsh and it's oppressive, just like that has a psychological effect and it can condition people to accept that this is all they're capable of and it can prevent them from maturing or growing or nurturing their own decision-making capabilities, their own volition, pursuing their own interests, just like there were for centuries in the South especially, the slave owners who were concerned about their slaves being taught to read, so also since emancipation and since the advent of American public education based on the Prussian model, a lot of Americans, in fact, most Americans have been conditioned to believe that people being stacked on top of each other in a factory way, in an assembly line, industrial way, that that's normal. And then anything that deviates from that is somehow insane or crazy or chaotic or it'll never work. And this is why we homeschool, because that is actually deeply, profoundly wrong. There's something bad that happens to the soul of a person and a society and has been happening. It's not conjecture. It's not theory. It has been happening cumulatively year over year generation over generation here in the United States of America, as even though we don't call ourselves slaves, there is a kind of parallel to the attitude that slave owners in the South had uh, towards their black African slaves. And then before that, so-called indentured servants. There's a similar kind of mindset that a lot of the corporate class has towards those who earn a salary or are paid hourly in their employ. And with respect, uh, Elon Musk, I disagree with you. I, I don't think it's immoral. If some people are able to work from home, and I actually commented on a Facebook share by Matt Walsh of this exact uh, article that I pulled the video clip from, 
Uh, I commented on Matt Walsh's share just yesterday. And I said, you know, if we're able to do the work remotely from home via an internet connection, that's more liberty. And it also should lower costs for companies to not have overbuilt and soulless office spaces, which have now in many cases been rendered obsolete and redundant because everyone was told to set up and get used to working from home due to COVID. These are a cost. And how much of the money, very similar to what we were talking about in our last episode about public education, public schools being built and superintendents and school boards bragging and showing off how fancy and shiny and expensive their new buildings are for the public school students. Uh, Very similar to that. So also with uh, office spaces, how much of the capital that goes into those office spaces would go much farther and you would have much happier employees, much more loyal employees for your corporation. If that same amount of money were going to upgrading the housing of your employees to where they can effectively work remote, work from home. Uh, you know, how much better would their standard of living be if the construction skill sets and the building materials were going into building more houses when buying a home and owning a home for many Americans is cost prohibitive, increasingly cost prohibitive due to rising interest rates, decreasing inventory relative people. We've got a flood of illegal immigrants coming across the southern border. Where are we going to put them? Well, in New York City, half of all hotel rooms are occupied at the taxpayer's expense by these illegal immigrants. And so the whole thing is messy and complicated, but I actually don't think the remote work, the work from home thing is all that complicated. Not everybody is able to work remotely, but how is that an argument against it being fair for some people to do so when they can? You might as well say, I think it's a moral issue that some people own multiple multi-billion dollar companies and most people don't. How it, you know, It's the same kind of thinking. And I've encountered this in my working life. I actually, a couple of employers ago, and this is part of the reason why I left that employer, I was told at a certain point, well, it wouldn't be fair for you to have such and such because nobody else has that. And my response was, yeah, but nobody else needs that. For one thing, I do. Nobody else has a vision for how they could use this thing to be more productive in their work. I do. Also, nobody else is getting called out in the middle of the night for automation-related, controls-related, electrical-related maintenance issues with these facilities. I am. Right? Nobody else needs this, but also nobody else is being asked to do what I'm being asked to do. And so if I'm saying, I think I could do the job that you're asking me to do more efficiently, how about you don't just shut your brain down because, well, nobody else has asked for that. Well, that's just not the way we've been doing it. What better way to destroy creativity and make your employees into soulless slaves and robots and automatons. I say no. I I say no. Uh, I went on to comment still further on Matt Walsh's post. Uh, Working from home is also a way more American parents could conceivably, possibly, maybe, potentially break the government monopoly on schooling, particularly if their children are primarily in public schools because the parents need a kind of babysitter during working hours. And boy, howdy. Every now and then I 
touch a live wire that I didn't realize was quite that juiced up. <laughs> and that right there, that little paragraph, that drew attention from other commenters. And some of that attention was, yes, right, absolutely, exactly. And there were at least two. There were at least two that commented and said, oh, yeah, yeah, my husband works from home. And it's great because he can actually eat lunch in the middle of the day when he goes to the office. He has so much pressure to just keep working that he doesn't eat lunch. That's great. And then why shouldn't somebody want to reclaim the time that it takes to commute back and forth? Why shouldn't they want that time back? You know, particularly when most companies don't pay you for the commute, they're not paying for the fuel. They're not paying for the wear and tear on your vehicle. They're not compensating you in most cases. Now in oil and gas, it's a bit different because you do have multi-site roles when you're out in the field, but increasingly the oil and gas companies are also trying to do away with such things. And also that was another reason why I left the company that I was at two companies ago because they arbitrarily decided a year and some change into my being with them that, oh yeah, we're going to cut the drive time. We're not going to pay for drive time anymore. Really? Interesting. That would have been good to know before I located my family in Greeley, Colorado, moving from Sydney, Montana back in 2019. That would have been good to know and have in writing on the front end, even though you didn't put that in writing. You didn't tell me, you just arbitrarily decided you You could save some money this way. Ah, the problem is you are taking money away from me. You're taking my ability to provide for my family away from me. Either I can't be with my family as much, or I just don't have as much money to uh, provide for them, to buy groceries and save up to buy a house for that matter in this very expensive market. Again, this is part of the reason why I left that company. The pushback was, Oh, but nobody else is getting that. So it wouldn't be fair, right? It wouldn't be fair for you to get it. And I say, that's a oh, that's a terrible argument. That's an awful argument. What a ridiculous argument. What are we, communists now? That sounds like a very communistic way of reasoning. Everybody should get the same thing. No, no, actually, everybody shouldn't get the same thing. That's not biblical. Historically, that's never been the way that it works. In our current situation, that's not how it works. The CEO of the company doesn't get the same thing as the junior operator you just hired on and he's still in training. No, 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 no. But a great many people commented and were upset with my saying that the public schools are essentially glorified babysitters. Lots of commenters did not like that. One gal said, oh, that's just an ignorant thing to say. Another guy was calling my suggestion that parents working from home could homeschool their kids call that insane. That's insane. And I won't go play by play on everything I said back and forth with some of those negative comments being critical of my perspective here. But I will say this. One, I know what I'm talking about because we're doing it. And one joker said, oh, it sounds like embezzlement. If you're working from home and homeschooling your kids, that sounds like embezzlement to me. And it's like, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up, back up. This is not complicated. Okay. If I'm at the office, how much of the day is occupied with my coworkers trying to talk about the latest hockey game that they just watched or what they're doing this coming weekend or where they're going to go on vacation next month 
How much of the day is occupied with that kind of small talk and banter? We just, we know for a fact that the whole workday when you go to the office is not filled with only pursuing the company's interests. In fact, you would go crazy. You would be a crazy person and much more like a robot, much more like a slave if somebody were standing over you all day long and would never allow you to talk about anything, not even for a few minutes at a time, anything else other than work, you would go crazy. That would be very oppressive. And that is insane, actually. That's not normal. That's not healthy. So what am I saying? I'm saying if you're going to be home, instead of talking with your coworker about how much they love hockey and where they're going to take their family on vacation next month, Maybe what you do instead is you help your kid with their math homework. Maybe what you do instead is you give some instructions on how to make some lunch and you're standing by because you've got to eat lunch too. Why don't, <laughs> I mean, what, you go to the office and then you just don't eat lunch? What what changes the scenario qualitatively if you're home and your kids also need to eat and so you're making lunch for you and your kids? Oh, that's just, that's not moral. That's not right. That's not fair. That's that's insane. That's embezzlement. No, it's not. No, it's not. You've been conditioned to think that the current status quo is normal. The current status quo is what's insane. But moving on, for the sake of time, we must, we must, we must. Let me draw your attention to a story out of North Dakota, which is very frustrating. North Dakota man pleads guilty to manslaughter after hitting teen he feared was linked to a Republican extremist group. This 42-year-old North Dakota man got into an argument with an 18-year-old boy. Shannon Brandt killed Kaylor Ellingson, pursued him after the argument. This teenager was on the phone with his mom asking her to come and get him. He was afraid. And the next thing you know, this guy intentionally hits him with his vehicle and then backs over him so as to squish him. And then he calls the cops like, hey, I just did my community service by killing a MAGA extremist. This was September 2022, so just last fall, in North Dakota. This is evil. And yet the media wants you to believe that Trump voters, conservatives, flyover America, Republicans, are the dangerous ones. Nope, it's the Democrats. It's the Democrats like this guy. It's the media whipping Democrats into a frenzy because all they care about is winning elections and staying in power. This is social justice in the minds of leftists. And so it's manslaughter. Moving on, Cardinal Pritchard posts to Not the Bee. Just yesterday, just when you thought he couldn't possibly get any creepier, here's Joe Biden taking and escorting a pair of children into the Oval Office. I'll play the audio for you. It's not long. It's a minute. And then I have some thoughts. Speaking of what's normal, what's not normal. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. On your last trip to Poland, what was your favorite thing there? What did you like in Poland? Really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Can we send them too? All right. Go, go ahead. Can I, yeah, can we? Yeah, I'm see. I, I can go. Yeah, he's, yeah. I got it. Uh-oh. They're going into the open. 
<laughs> and off he goes. <clears throat> off Joe Biden goes, taking these kids without their parents into the Oval Office. Randomly, unplanned. Just, hey, send your kids over to me. I'm going to take your kids. Which, following the Democrats' mindset, I suppose if there is no such thing as other people's kids, then those are Joe Biden's kids now. Uh, weird, super weird, extraordinarily not normal. And oh, by the way, not all that different from sending your kids into the public schools as if that's just what we do. That's just what parents have always done. Parents have always sent their kids to the government to just have them for most of their waking hours, for most of their life from kindergarten through 12th grade. Totally. Yeah. You're a crazy person. If you think you could raise your kids, the government needs to do that. Those are the government's kids now. The people's kids. How about how about that? The people's kids. Like the People's Republic of China. Those are the people's kids. Moving on. Sports World reacts to Brittany Griner's national anthem comment, a story by Cameron Duncan from The Spun. Brittany Griner recently played her first game for the Phoenix Mercury since her return from detainment in Russia. The seven-time All-Star scored 10 points against the Los Angeles Sparks in her first game in 572 days. Prior to her detainment, Griner spoke out about the national anthem during the George Floyd protests of 2020. She said she wouldn't stand for the anthem and even advocated for removing it from pregame ceremonies. On Friday, Griner stood for the anthem with her teammates in her first game back, and she seems to have a new perspective. Quote, hearing the national anthem, it definitely hit different, said Griner, who has two Olympic gold medals with the USA women's basketball team. Quote, it's like when you go for the Olympics, you're sitting there about to put gold on your neck, the flags are going up, and the anthem is playing. It just hits different, end quote. If I may elaborate, you got a little taste of what a Russian idea of justice is. You know, here's your country, here's your country on communism. Russia being under Soviet oppression for several generations, they do not have the same idea of what your rights are or whether you even have rights. And we need to be aware before we go tearing something down, destroying something, we need to be aware of what the alternative is. And this is a very conservative position. This is, in fact, the conservative position. Before you go reforming things, you should at least know how they work. Before you go abolishing things, destroying things, you should at least know how they work. Is this the best we have? The best we've produced? Is this better than the alternatives? Well, in that case, let's tread lightly. Rather than protesting your country as if your country is the worst country, it's an inherently oppressive country, try going over to China or Russia and seeing how your typical behavior, way of living is related to there. And then come back and we'll talk. And here we see. Here we see what a difference it made to get in trouble in Russia. Now, all of a sudden, she's feeling patriotic. And she may not have the words to explain quite how, quite why, but you and I understand. It's the or else. Or what? Compared to what? America is a terrible country. Compared to which country? And you say, but Garrett, you were just talking about the public education system and Joe Biden taking people's kids, who knows where, into the White House. What's he going to do with them in there? And I say, yes, but it's the left, right? It's the left that for a century plus has been 
trying to make America more like a socialist country, more like a communistic country. It's been the left consistently agitating for communism, not conservatives. There are no conservatives arguing for communism. Zero. Zip, zero. Zip, zilch, zero. Nada. None. None at all. But moving on. Paul Saka over at The Blaze published a piece May 19th, 2023. Target faces boycott for selling tuck-friendly bathing suits, LGBTQ onesies for babies, trans power t-shirts, drag queen books for young children. And I'll say this is the reason why when I recently was going to buy some clothes with my oldest son, Josiah, he's been growing and he's outgrown or worn out the clothes that he had. We had a piano recital for his younger siblings. It became apparent that ah, if you're going to wear something that you're not embarrassed to wear, that's in good shape, we're going to need to go get you some more clothes. So my wife had told me on the front end that Target is drawing a lot of attention here lately with how they're gearing up for not just Pride Month, but Pride all the time, promoting, normalizing, celebrating LGBTQ plus homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism. There we go. That's what I meant to say, sexual deviance. And so we didn't go to Target. I would have taken my son to Target, but we didn't go to Target because of this. We went to Kohl's instead. And that's just what we have to be willing to do. You could say, oh, that's insane, right? Like the people commenting in reply to my saying, parents who can work remotely are at a greater ability. They have a greater opportunity to homeschool their kids. And America would be better for that. We would be more free as a country for that. The same kinds of people who say, oh, that's insane. That's crazy. If you give them a few generations, they'll be the exact same people or their descendants will be the exact same kind of people saying that it would be insane to do away with the marketing materials and the products and the social engineering that Target is pushing. No, this is what's not normal. Promoting drag shows for kids. That's not normal. Mutilating their bodies because you've talked them into being the opposite gender, the opposite sex. That's what's not normal. Totally normal for me to say, uh, no, no, that's evil. You're evil. Stop it. In other news, Jesse James over at Not The Bee published a piece yesterday. DeSantis says, doctors who perform sex change surgeries on kids should go to jail. I'll play another cut for you, another clip for you, rather. Here's Ron DeSantis in cut three. Take a listen. And then we also did a bill, which is sad that we're even having discussed this, uh, to criminalize the mutilation of minors who are undergoing these sex change operations by these really rogue ideological physicians. And we've had heartbreaking testimony from people that have gone through this when they were minors. Now they're adults. And this is something they're now having to overcome really for the rest of their lives because irreversible changes were made. We banned this administratively last year through our medical board. So if a medical doctor did this, they lose the license in Florida, which is appropriate. But we felt you had to do more. I mean, if you're taking off the private parts of some 15-year-old kid, you know, you should go to jail for that. Uh, this is just totally unacceptable. One of the things we did in that bill, though, is we're giving the victims the ability to sue the physicians. So if you've gone through this as a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old, now you're 24, 25, and you have all this irreversible damage, you bring suit against them because they violated the Hippocratic Oath 
They put their ideology ahead of evidence-based medicine, uh, and we just think that's fundamentally wrong in the state of Florida. And that's exactly right. And this is why I want Ron DeSantis to be president of the United States of America, the next president, DeSantis 2024. He's exactly right. Straight to jail. Take them straight to jail. On the other side of the political spectrum, Blinken raises eyebrows with wording of condemnation of harmful conversion therapy practices. Who's going to tell him? Thanks to Joseph McKinnon over at The Blaze for publishing this piece May 18th. Highlighted is a tweet from Secretary Anthony Blinken. And I quote, on International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Interphobia, and Transphobia, we call for an end to harmful conversion therapy practices, including those that attempt to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression, or sex characteristics. Hashtag Idahobit, end quote. Let's just take a moment to process how everything Blinken is saying is the reason why we should be banning the promotion of homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism in our schools, in our libraries, in our media. Everything he's saying is exactly opposite. And this is not a question of nuance and maybe, you know, if you interpret certain passages of scripture as a Christian, you can support or endorse or affirm this. No, 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 no. Better that a millstone would be tied around a man's neck and he would be cast into the middle of the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to stumble or to sin or to disbelieve. Jesus is not mysterious about this. This is an evil, pagan, satanic thing. This is not a question of right versus left, Republicans versus Democrats, sophisticated city dwellers on the coasts versus those country bumpkins in flyover country. No, no. This is a question of good and evil. Good and evil. When we look back at history and we see foot binding in China, for instance, because the standard of beauty was small feet. We're horrified, rightly. When we look at the making of eunuchs in various empires throughout human history, because uh, well, you don't want to have these servants, these slaves working in the harem around the king or emperor's many wives and concubines with the ability to contaminate his stock. So we're going to just take these boys and men and castrate them and then press them into service. They'll be very obedient when we castrate them. Also, they won't be able to breed with the king's or emperor's harem. We're rightly horrified by that. We should be horrified by that. It's an evil thing. It's an oppressive thing. What could be more oppressive than talking somebody into, a child into, having their reproductive organs removed. What could be more oppressive than that? This is abusive. This is evil. And we should rightly, consistently, loudly condemn it. But this is not just happening on the coasts. Lest we suppose this is a blue state problem only. This is a Washington, D.C. establishment problem. Harris Rigby reports May 19th over at Not the Bee. Texas Attorney General launches investigation into Children's Hospital allegedly performing sex changes on children. Earlier this week, Chris Rufo chronicled a children's hospital in Houston, Texas, by the way, Texas, that was secretly performing children's sex change operations, even after they were officially suspended due to Texas 
AG classifying gender transition as child abuse. They even went as far as to scrub the bio of one of the doctors who admitted continuing their butchery. That's what you call effective reporting. And here, what you can't see, but I'll tell you, and you can follow the link. You can check it out for yourself. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Texas Children's Hospital scrubs bio of gender-affirming doc after whistleblower details secret sex change ops on minors. This is another post from Not to Be. Kudos to Not to Be for reporting on this. This is happening in Texas, Houston, Texas. And lest we suppose, oh, but Texas, that's Republican. That's deep red. We don't need to worry about Texas. Lest you suppose, oh, the oil and gas industry, very conservative. We don't need to worry about oil and gas. We want more oil and gas. All these oil and gas people are very conservative. Ah, You know what? Actually, the last two oil and gas companies I've worked for, and the very first one that I worked for as well, according to what I've heard from former coworkers of mine, these major oil and gas companies are going woke as well. They're promoting it in their HR materials. They're promoting ESG initiatives for their employees. It's happening in the oil and gas industry as well. You will embrace DEI. You will embrace DEI as deity, as God, according to even major oil and gas companies headquartered in Houston, Texas. Don't assume. Don't assume. Also from Not the Bee, published just this morning, this high school put tampon dispensers in the boys' bathrooms. You'll be so proud of how the boys responded. What did the boys do at Lake Ridge High School in Lake Oswego, Oregon? They took the dispenser off the wall and they put it in the toilet, in the boys' bathroom. Not once, but several times. So then the school is <laughs> upset. The administration is frustrated. How do we get these boys to stop misbehaving? No, no. How about you guys stop misbehaving? How about you stop with the promoting of the idea that the ideal would be androgyny? You're trying to functionally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually make these boys into eunuchs by putting tampon dispensers in their bathroom. They don't need tampons. They're boys. They don't get periods. They're boys. What's normal throughout human history is that boys grow up to be men and girls grow up to be women. Not that boys grow up to be women and girls grow up to be men. And not that you just lop off all the reproductive organs because you've talked these little boys and girls into not learning reading, writing, arithmetic, history, social studies, not learning science, certainly not learning theology, You've talked them into learning about preferred pronouns and about being two-spirit. And even if they're not into any of that, you've been teaching them to call themselves cisgender and check their privilege because they're oppressing. If they have access to something that not everybody has access to, oh, that's not fair. That's a communistic idea. That is a Marxist idea. Taking people's kids away from them and redistributing them to the community because these parents think that they actually have rights over their kids and you feel threatened by that, that's Marxist. It's in the Communist Manifesto. He talks about redistributing spouses too. Everybody belongs to everybody, which is to say nobody belongs to anybody, which is to say you alienate the individual even from themselves. And there's no better description for this transgender push than the ultimate alienation from oneself. Going back to theblaze.com, Paul Saka again May 20th, teacher of the year charged with rape of underage student. Detectives say there may be more victims. 
And here pictured is a California teacher, Tracy Vanderholst, youngish, probably I would guess, late 20s, early 30s. She's accused of unlawful sexual intercourse with a 16-year-old male student. And you might say, that's awful. That's horrible. That's no good. And I say, it's in the process of being normalized. If your rubric is, if it's legal, then it must be okay. Then you are one of the people who has been brainwashed by the social engineering of a century in these public schools. And even if you didn't attend public school, but you think along those lines, if it's legal, then it's moral. If it's soon to be legal, then maybe, uh, well, then maybe. If it's 16, the Democrats want to lower the voting age to 16. So, hey. Or if you think, well, at least she didn't, you know, take him to get gender reassignment surgery. I say, this is why we homeschool. And this is why we homeschool. This gal was teacher of the year in a description of Vanderholst being awarded. Yukaipa High School's Teacher of the Year Award, she was described as someone who, quote, epitomizes the educator so many desire to be. She is the kind and innovative teacher from whom we hope our children will grow. The educator who strives to engage all of her students from her intervention classes to her honors classes, end quote. But of course, of course, the public schools and their most ardent defenders will say, oh, that's the exception. Well, that's California. No, no, it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. And why wouldn't it? When you mix the ingredients, you will get this. And you will get every kind of dysfunction. You will get self-harm from students. You will get attempts at suicide from students. You will get bullying and school shootings. You will get a 79% literacy rate here in the U.S. 79% for the country. The kids of this country, 79%, one in five, are illiterate. According to John Taylor Gatto, the numbers just prior to compulsory government schooling, thanks to the progressives, thanks to the Horace Manns and the John Deweys and the FDRs, the literacy rate was 98%. 79% is a lot less. It's a lot less than 98. I tried, by the way, to look up what the stats are for homeschoolers. I can't find stats for what the literacy rate is for homeschoolers. Every time I tried looking it up yesterday, all that would come up is how much higher homeschool students consistently score on math and reading. And do you know why a big part of that is irrelevant is because it's not about standardized testing, but then that's also why the homeschool students are consistently testing better even on the standardized testing, is because the homeschoolers aren't being taught to the test just so the school district can get more money so that this teacher or that teacher or that principal can win an award. Homeschoolers are being taught in most cases, in the majority of cases, so that they are of sound mind and good character. And then you give them a test and they're like, okay, what's this? Yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know that. I know that. And this is why we homeschool. Next up, Tim Meads. These are our kids. They belong to all of us. Three times the left trampled on parental authority this past week alone. I'll play another clip here for you. This one of White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Very intersectional gal. She's being interviewed briefly at some event she attended. Here it is. Cut for, take a listen. 
There are more than 600 pieces of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation out there. A few hundred of them are anti-trans community. And that matters because we have to call that out. And we've never seen this level, it's historic, in the number of pieces of legislation. And I've met a lot of parents of trans kids in the past couple of months who have told me this, these devastating stories, whether they're in Texas or Oklahoma or wherever they are, saying how they now have to seriously consider leaving their state to protect their child. And that's something that we have to call out and continue to be very clear about, that these are kids. These are our kids. They belong to all of us. Ah, but they're not, though. They're, they're not. They don't belong to all of us. That's a very communistic idea. That the children of the community belong to everybody in the community. No, no. No, they don't. No, that's not true. What's next? You're going to say the women of the community, married or unmarried, they belong to all of us, right? That's not somebody else's wife. That's everybody's wife. No, 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 no. Marx would agree with that. I must object. That's evil. That is communistic. That's satanic. Here again, I don't mean to be rude to Elon Musk, but the line of reasoning whereby we would say people working from home is not fair because not everybody gets to do that. You're going to force somebody else to go to the factory and work in person while you stay home, work on your laptop. That's not fair. That's immoral. And I say that same kind of reasoning is driving the whole woke push. That same line of reasoning is driving the left's push for communism. That same line of reasoning is pushing for taking kids away from their parents. She highlights parents supposedly moving from one state to another to, quote unquote, protect their kids. What she really means is take them to a state where they're not going to get in legal trouble for abusing their children, offering their kids up to surgeons to mutilate. What she's not highlighting is parents in blue states who can have their kids taken away now. If they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, they find out that the public schools have been indoctrinating their child to think they're a girl trapped in a boy's body, boy trapped in a girl's body. The parents object. They say, absolutely not. We're pulling our kids out. And then in those states, now it's legal. Washington state, look it up. Now it's legal for the state to take the child away from the parents. And what's the mindset? The mindset is, well, those aren't really your children. And what's the argument? The experts know better. The public schools know better. Oh, never mind about the teachers having sexual relationships with their children. No, no, no. There's definitely not grooming going on here. There's definitely not. Don't worry about that. Or if there is, we're not going to call it that. We're going to say, because of the thought process inherent to comprehensive sexual education, these children have a human right to have sex with each other and with adults. And we have to encourage them to. In fact, that's how we liberate these kids is by encouraging them to have sexual relationships. The younger, the better. No, no, that's evil. That's evil what you're doing. That's corrupt. That's going to be judged by a holy and righteous God who will not be mocked and he will not fall for your word games, your deception, he knows better. You can pass whatever law you want to. You can issue whatever executive order you prefer. God will not be mocked. My kids are not your kids. No, 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 no. Not, not unless it's my wife listening to this podcast right now. Of course, Lauren, I love you, dear. 
My kids are your kids too. All of them. All, all of my kids are your kids. What's mine is yours and what's yours is ours. But everybody else, <laughs> everybody else, my kids are not your kids. No. And your kids are not my kids. This is chaos. This is absolute breakdown of not just the country. And this is why it's not an option for Christians to just not get engaged. At what point do you say it's time for the Christian to get engaged? When the legislation is passed outlawing homeschooling, where that's not even an option? When legislation is passed in your state saying that CPS can take your kids because they've decided that it's child abuse for you to teach your child Christian morals, for you to teach your kid the Bible in your own home because we've decided, we've accepted, we have normalized the argument that it is somebody's human right to not be told to repent of sexual immorality. Therefore, your words are violence. Therefore, we have to take your children away from you. Christians, the American church has been negligent for too long. We have not been paying enough attention to what is our business. This is our business because the argument that's being made is not going to stop at the schools. It's not going to stop in the corporate world. It's absolutely coming for your kids because they regard these as not your kids. They regard your kids as their kids, as everybody's kids. And so Joe Biden can, instead of answering a question being asked on the White House lawn, he can just say, send me your kids. Literally, symbolically, that's huge. That's a very significant thing. He looks like he's trying to reenact the whole Baphomet thing where there's a little boy on the one side and there's a little girl on the one side. He's holding the little girl's hand and then the little boy is just kind of walking along with him and the parents are like, oh, this is so wonderful. This is so great. We're so honored. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that the parents who offered their children to Molech in Canaan before God drove their peoples out and dispossessed them for the very thing. I'm sure that those parents also thought it was really wonderful. It's really great. See, look, Molech is taking our child. Oh, I'm so proud. No, 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 you shouldn't be proud. There is a God in heaven who rules and reigns. And there is a lake of fire that you were going to. You should be trembling in fear of the judgment that is coming. You should be falling on your face and repenting. I wouldn't for an instant trust a single one of my children to Joe Biden. Not for an instant. Absolutely not. No, I'm not sending my kids to you. For that matter, I wouldn't even want to be at the White House with this administration holding sway. No, thank you. No, thank you. But let's do play another clip. This one cut five of a Florida fifth grade teacher who showed students an LGBT themed Disney movie. Here's what she thinks of parents objecting. Here it is. Cut five. Take a listen. And Jenna, you've said you feel that this is a targeted attack. What do you mean when you say that? Um, this That same school board member is currently going around right now trying to, well, along with, you know, the whole what DeSantis is doing, trying to get rid of all basically diversity elements out of schools completely. Like they're trying to strip individuality and diversity to fit one common agenda. And it's ruining everything. It's not what America stands for. I think let's let our viewers listen to what that parent said um, that complained uh, about you doing this in, in a recent school board meeting. Here it is. 
It is not a teacher's job to impose their beliefs upon a child. Religious, sexual orientation, gender identity, any of the above. But allowing movies such as this assist teachers in opening a door, and please hear me, they assist teachers in opening a door for conversations that have no place in our classrooms. We had played that for the viewers in the introduction, but I just want to give you a chance to respond. Yeah, so that's what she's missing and what these parents are missing is they're not in the school system. That that just shows me that she's ignorant and has not come and volunteered at all because our, these conversations, these doors, they're open. These students have one-to-one -one devices. The amount of things that they're able to pull up that we have to shut down, they, they, these conversations, these doors that she's talking about, that's telling me I'm stripping her rights as a parent, those rights are gone when your child's in the public school system because there are students talking about these things. It's where they get 90% of their socialization for the day. And we can't shut down every conversation every child has. Thank you for being with us this morning. Keep so, us posted. It's just I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, it's okay. And this is why we homeschool. <laughs> you can go buy my book. Go buy my book. Buy a copy for yourself. Buy a copy for somebody you love who has children in the public schools. Buy my book. And this is why we homeschool. Available on Amazon. Increasingly, public school libraries are full of nonsense books that promote sexual immorality. That try to talk your kids into becoming the other gender. Having sexual relations with their own gender. Or with anybody and everybody, all ages, all genders, all spirits, this is paganism. Why not buy a copy of my book, and this is why we homeschool and put it on the shelf of your home library or in the hands of somebody you know who has kids who are being treated to this. This teacher in the Florida public schools says explicitly, you have no parental rights when your kids are in the public school system. What more? needs to be said. I didn't put those words in her mouth. She said it on CNN being interviewed for the whole world, to, uh, for the whole world to see and to hear. You just heard it. <clears throat> you didn't see it, but I saw it. What more do you need to know? What more proof do you need? This is very, very simple. This is not hard to understand. It might be hard to do the thing that you need to do now as a parent and get your kids out. But it's not a hard thing to understand, really, truly. And the parent, I, I'm sorry, but to some extent, this teacher is right. The parent complaining as she is at the school board meeting is somewhat ignorant because this parent is saying, oh, teachers don't have a right to impose their beliefs, pass on their beliefs to our children. And I say, that's the whole idea of the system is that the teachers being the experts are the ones who should pass on their beliefs that they have been given in their own colleges. And you parents are the ones who shouldn't be passing on your beliefs. If you're an immigrant a hundred years ago, the progressives didn't want you passing on pride in your country of origin. They wanted you to have a civic virtue that was American. And so that was how it kind of started. Oh, we've got to assimilate all of these immigrants. And then pretty soon it's, well, you know, not everybody agrees about who God is or how we should worship him or whether he even exists or if he created us. Nobody should be talking about God, but let's do talk about Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. We'll say that that's the origin and that's neutral. No, it's not. Charles Darwin's first cousin is the guy who literally 
invented the term. He coined the term eugenics. The public education system was a massive social engineering project from the beginning. It's not first and foremost about teaching your kids to read and write. And that's why your kids can't read and write good. (laughs) But it gets down to these teachers from the very, very top. And quite honestly, I don't think that running for school board is enough. I don't think that being a public school teacher is enough. I don't think being a public school administrator is enough. I don't think that the answer is for more Christian parents to volunteer in the public schools. If you feel called to that, then I disagree with you. But by all means, go with God. Adios. Go with God. But Michelle Blood over at The Blaze published a piece just yesterday, Parents Scorch Biden's Education Secretary Cardona for claiming teachers know what's best for their kids. Here's the tweet. Teachers know what is best for their kids because they are with them every day. We must trust teachers. And I say, and this is why we homeschool. My wife's a teacher. I'm a teacher. No, I don't trust your public school teachers who say parents have no rights. No, I don't trust your public school teachers who are having sexual relationships with their students. No, I don't trust your public school teachers who are going to tell their students, other people's children, you don't need to tell your parents about the conversations that we have. That's predatory behavior. Just because it's on an industrial scale and just because it's legal, just because it's state-sanctioned and government-funded and taxpayer-funded and duly elected or appointed by somebody who is supposedly duly elected, that doesn't make it right. It's wrong. It's evil. It's immoral. It's ungodly. Nikki Haley replied, parents know what is best for their kids because they raise them every day. We must trust parents. Fixed it for you, Secretary Cardona. And I say, yeah, but if you're sending your kids to the public schools, you are having the public schools raise them for the majority of the time. That teacher in Florida being interviewed by CNN, she says it. 90% of the socialization, which is to say social conditioning, social engineering, psychological conditioning, 90% of it that these kids are getting, they're getting in the public schools. And the big idea is to be obedient to the progressive agenda, not to read and to write well so that you can be a free citizen of a free country in a traditional historic way, in a way that we would recognize as healthy, holy, happy. Their idea of happy children growing up into happy adults is they don't need to have their ideas affected by religion, the Bible, a deep and abiding curiosity. No, no, they need to submit. They need to sit in rows and columns and obey their teacher and the school administrator and the school board, which if you put a conservative on it, ooh, man, they are going to be mad. You're imposing your morality. Ah, You know what? You were imposing your morality. Somebody else just imposed their morality right back. Somebody's morality is going to be the standard. And we know this because the arguments being made are this or that isn't right. We should trust teachers. What is that? That's a moral argument. That's a moral claim. Secretary Miguel Cardona says we must trust teachers. That's not a law. So it's a moral claim predicated on what? And oh, by the way, did you know pedagogy? I just learned this from John Taylor Gatto's book, Weapons of Mass Instruction, a great book, which we'll be talking about here in just a moment, which I suppose in some sense we've been talking about it this entire podcast episode. Weapons of Mass Instruction, a school teacher's journey through the dark world of compulsory schooling. John Taylor Gatto, who was a public school teacher in New York City for decades, 
and one national acclaim as well. He points out that pedagogy or pedagogue comes to us from the Greek word agogos, meaning leader. Peda, you'll recognize as a root in pediatrician, for instance, just means child. Pedagogos was a slave, according to Merriam-Webster. A pedagogos was a slave who led boys to school and back, but also taught them manners and tutored them after school. In time, pedagogue came to mean simply teacher. Today, the word has an old-fashioned ring to it, so it often means a stuffy, boring teacher. But here's the point. Here's the point that John Taylor Gatto makes. Even the best-intentioned of public school teachers are slaves to this system. They are slaves to a certain philosophy of education. They are slaves to the Department of Education. They are slaves to the progressive vision for a ordered society wherein a very small percentage actually own the corporations and control the levers of power, and 99% just need to do what they're told, just need to report to the factory, just need to obey orders in a professional military, and do not question, and not disobey, and not challenge. And even that we think the default is for everybody to be obedient is to say, we're fish in water who don't realize that we're wet. We don't realize that we've been conditioned by this education system as a people for a century now to obey. And this is why school boards ignore parents who are upset about what their kids are being taught, how their kids are being indoctrinated to be homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered. The schools don't care because actually these parents thinking that they can talk back and disagree and challenge and critique, these parents are apparently defective products of a system that was supposed to strip them of this individuality, of this self-determination, of this idea that they are free. Don't you talk back to your betters on the school board or they will try to humiliate you. They'll talk down to you. They'll condescend. Maybe they'll be very, very polite, but it's a sneering politeness at best. They're not responsive. They're not ultimately accountable to you in their minds. They're here to manage you, not to report to you as they see it. They're here to manage your perceptions and to social engineer you as parents just as much as they're trying to social engineer your children. And this is why we homeschool nationwide. On average, 79% of U.S. adults are literate in the year 2023. 54% of adults have a literacy below sixth grade level. Low levels of literacy cost the U.S. up to $2.2 trillion per year, according to thinkimpact.com, their page on literacy statistics. And this is a problem if the big idea is to teach kids to read. But you don't even have to look at stats. You could say, oh, well, I don't know if I trust the stats. Maybe our standards are higher. Grab a book that was being read in schools before compulsory progressive Prussian schooling was made the law of the land, so-called, a century ago. Grab some of the books that were being read in schools and that kids read and compare them against the books that are being read by kids today. Look at the reading lists from 150 years ago. You know, I was listening to an interview with Dr. Alan Gualzo, who we talked about an article written by him that was published in Desiring God in our last episode. 
But Kevin DeYoung sits down for a conversation with Dr. Alan Gueltso of Princeton University, Lincoln Scholar, to ask about Abraham Lincoln. Should we call him a Redeemer president because of the Emancipation Proclamation? What was his relationship with God? What was his faith? Was he an adherent of organized religion? He was raised by Calvinist parents. His mom died when he was very young, a fact which is very, very sad to my second oldest son, Eli. Ask him about it sometime. But Gweltso points out that Lincoln didn't have what we would consider a good education. But then most people of that generation didn't have a very good education. But what Lincoln had was insatiable curiosity. He had an intellect that consumed books voraciously. He was very intelligent. He was very well-read. And I say, I'll take that education. Thank you. I'll take the education of Abraham Lincoln over this nonsense of preferred pronouns. And tell me what color you're feeling during an interaction. That was the Chevron HR material that I was subjected to when I very first started being a systems integrator for them. Tell me what color this interaction you're going to watch feels like. This is social engineering. In our day, first and foremost, it's not a good education. Just because there are more hours in the day being set aside for formal instruction, more years in the childhood being set aside for formal instruction, that doesn't mean that you're getting a better education any more than cutting a check for millions of dollars to build a new building means that these kids are going to get a better education. What you're getting is more indoctrination in progressive thinking. What you're getting is more social engineering more obedience training. Speaking of Weapons of Mass Instruction by John Taylor Gatto, there's a fact check from jacoblightbody.com. John Taylor Gatto makes a claim in his book, which I just finished yesterday, that there were two congressional investigations, one in 1915 and one in 1959, which came to identical conclusions that school policy, quote, was being deliberately created far from public oversight to be secretly inserted into the school mechanism by a sophisticated, highly nuanced campaign of influence invisible to public awareness. So that's the claim. Jacob Lightbody went and did some research and found assumptions concerning apparent discrepancies relating to the dates of the investigation. One, the 1915 congressional investigation has been assumed to be the Commission on Industrial Relations, also known as the Walsh commission that was authorized by Congress in 1912. The investigation was concluded in 1915, and the commission published the final report of its findings in 1916. Number two, the 1959 congressional investigation has been assumed to be the select committee to investigate tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations, also known as the Cox Committee and later the Reese Committee that was authorized by the 82nd Congress. The committee began its investigations in 1952, and it published the final report of its findings in 1954. Research results, the Walsh Commission, 1912 to 1916. Randall G. Holcomb's Writing Off Ideas, Taxation, Foundations, and Philanthropy in America contains the following account of the Walsh Commission's role in our history. Quote, in 1916, Congress created a commission on industrial relations, which concluded that a handful of wealthy individuals, after gaining control over a large segment of the U.S. economy and pushing for political control of the nation, were using nonprofit foundations to gain control over the nation's educational system, over its healthcare system, over its social services, and other facets of American life. Congress was concerned that despite the use of antitrust laws to control the power of the small group of capitalists that exerted so much control over the economy, they were using foundations as a capitalist tool to further their own interests. 
Here's a small piece of what the Walsh Commission had to say about the foundations in 1916. Quote, The domination by the men in whose hands the final control of a large part of American industry rests is not limited to their employees, but is being rapidly extended to control the education and social service of the nation. This control is being extended largely through the creation of enormous privately managed funds for indefinite purposes herein after designated foundations by the endowment of colleges and universities by the creation of funds for pensioning teachers by contributions to private charities as well as through controlling or influencing the public press. Two groups of the foundations, namely the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, together have funds amounting to at least $250 million, yielding an annual revenue of at least $13.5 million, which is at least twice as great as the appropriations of the federal government for similar purposes, namely education and social service. 1916 source texts are included. There's a bookmarked scan of the excerpt from the published report. There's also a web-based reproduction of the entire original report. You can check it out. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. The point being that John Taylor Gatto is onto something, or he was onto something. John Taylor Gatto, in Weapons of Mass Instruction, at the very tail end of his book, he highlights a story written by Herman Melville. You'll recognize the author of Moby Dick, I trust. But the short story was titled Bartleby the Scrivener. Wikipedia summarizes as follows. First serialized anonymously in two parts in the November and December 1853 issues of Putnam's Magazine and reprinted with minor textual alterations in his The Piazza Tales in 1856. In the story, a Wall Street lawyer hires a new clerk who, after an initial bout of hard work, refuses to make copies or do any other task required of him, refusing with the words, I would prefer not to. Numerous critical essays have been published about the story, which scholar Robert Milder describes as, quote, unquestionably the masterpiece of the short fiction, end quote, in the Melville canon. And the whole business, the whole business of Bartleby the Scrivener as Gatto compares it to public schooling, is that at a certain point, Bartleby the Scrivener is tired of being run down and he's depressed and he's frustrated and he's just not going to go any farther. And so he starts responding to orders with, I would prefer not to. I would prefer not to. I would prefer not to. And then at a certain point, he just stops working entirely. And then at a certain point, as it turns out, he's been living in the clerk's office because he doesn't have enough money to have his own place. And so he's hauled off and he's thrown in a cell where next he says, I would prefer not to when they tell him to eat. And the next thing you know, he's buried in a poor man's grave. And Gatto likens this to the condition mentally, emotionally, morally, spiritually, of many American children. They hate what is being done to them instinctively, and we should too. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why I disagree with Elon Musk's opinion. I understand it's his opinion. It's just that. It's his opinion. Great. Wonderful. I disagree. I disagree with his opinion about parents needing to go back to work in the interest of fairness. You know, something about working from home, you come to realize is at home, you actually own things. This is my desk. 
It's not the company's desk. This is my office. It's not the company's office. This is my wife, not somebody else's wife. These are my children, not coworkers who have been turned into perpetual adolescence by the public school system, not somebody else's children. These are my children because we homeschool. My kids are home during the day most of the time. Of course, they go out and they do other things. Sure. But the trouble with going to the office is this is the company's office. This is the company's desk. This is the company's computer. This is the company's coffee. This is the company's restroom that you're going to go and use every now and then when you can slip away, as long as you're not too busy. Everything belongs to the company. At a certain point, you get to thinking you belong to the company. Not just that they are compensating you for your time, but that you, mind, body, soul, belong to the company. And we instinctively hate that too. It's joyless. It's soul-crushing. An endless number of movies have been written, filmed, edited, released about how we hate that. The Office. My wife and I were just watching a little bit of The Office last night with the kids. That might have been a mistake. But I didn't say (laughs) we shield our children from anything and everything that is foolishness. I didn't say that. At a certain point, we wouldn't let them read the Bible either. And that's not okay with me. But we were watching The Office and my kids asked me, is this how it really is when you have to go to an office? I said, yeah, some of it's, you know, obviously dramatized and exaggerated, but it's an uncomfortable amount of similarity with the dynamics to what is typical in an office environment, unfortunately. That's not normal. That's not happy. And we all know that. But the public schools have conditioned us to think that it's normal, and it's not normal. The public schools have conditioned us to think that the natural order is for a very small percentage of people to own those big office buildings and those big factory buildings, to have control of where the investment is going to go, to tell us what to do with our kids and our wives and our homes. And that's exactly what the likes of Rockefeller and Carnegie wanted. They were social Darwinists, these titans of industry who decided to affect public policy in the U.S. via their foundations. These were social Darwinists who invested heavily in eugenics. How much of our university system and our public school system is really just one grand eugenics project? Really, really, truly. Is this good just because it's legal? Is it good just because it's been typical of the last century? I say no. Any more than if you lived in Atlanta, Georgia in the year 1800, and you looked around and you saw slaves being abused by their masters. You know, the husband gets sent over to the neighboring plantation because the neighboring plantation's got a slave woman needing bread. This guy's already married. He's already got kids, but he's treated like an animal, moved around like an animal. Do you think that just because the North conquered the South in the Civil War and the slaves were freed, do you think that just because of the Emancipation Proclamation, Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, the welfare state, the great society programs, the New Deal. Do you think that just because those things are in the past, the idea, the thinking about our fellow man went away for the people who 
have so much wealth, have so much power, have so much pull? No, indeed. It's just that we call it something different. It's just that it's organized more efficiently, more scientifically now. And it's all dressed up in euphemisms. It's industrialized now. And this is why we homeschool. The publisher's summary at audible.com reads as follows. John Taylor Gatto's Weapons of Mass Instruction focuses on mechanisms of traditional education, which cripple imagination, discourage critical thinking, and create a false view of learning as a byproduct of rote memorization drills. Gatto's earlier work, Dumbing Us Down, introduced the now famous expression of the title into the common vernacular Weapons of Mass Instruction adds another chilling metaphor to the brief against conventional schooling. Gatto demonstrates that the harm school inflicts is rational and deliberate. The real function of pedagogy, he argues, is to render the common population manageable. To that end, young people must be conditioned to rely upon experts to remain divided from natural alliances and to accept disconnections from their own lived experiences. They must at all costs be discouraged from developing self-reliance and independence Escaping this trap requires a strategy Gatto calls open source learning, which imposes no artificial divisions between learning and life. Through this alternative approach, our children can avoid being indoctrinated. Only then can they achieve self-knowledge, good judgment, and courage. Copyright 2009, John Taylor Gatto, published 2012, Post-Hypnotic Press, Incorporated. Release date on audiobook, February 26, 2013. Weapons of Mass Instruction is a great title. And I mean, it's named well. And also, this is a great book that you should read. You should read and you should ponder deeply for its implications. I, for one, just met with the Welfare of the City Project Committee yesterday morning for breakfast. And we talked about District 6 and the upset over certain books and certain programs and certain curriculum, certain teachings that are being hoisted on the kids in this area, in this county, in this city where we live. And almost all of us as men at the table are homeschooling our kids or have, I suppose, even in the one case where not all of his kids are homeschooled. He has homeschooled. They are homeschooling one of their kids right now. But I told them at a certain point, I said, you know, really the big question to my mind is how dangerous do we want to be here? And what I mean is I am not interested in going in and trying to ban certain books. I'm not because that's dealing with symptoms and this needs to be attacked at the roots. Promote school choice. Argue while parents are thinking about these things. And while COVID is still somewhat fresh in our minds and a lot of parents saw because they were home and their kids were home. And if their kids were doing remote learning, my point, my wife points out, now you've got all these parents thinking that they've homeschooled and it was awful and they were terrible at it. No, that wasn't homeschooling. No, 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 no. Your kid jumping on the computer to do a Zoom call with their teacher is not homeschooling. No, no, no. But COVID lockdowns being a progressive idea, being a kind of obedience training for the United States of America and for the world by these same characters should be fresh in our minds, and we should demand that our tax dollars, the tax dollars that go to the public schools, follow our children wherever they go for an education. If your kids are going to be private schooled, 
those tax dollars should follow your kids to a private school. If you're going to homeschool your kids, those tax dollars should follow your kids home. And in that way, one, we would save a great deal of taxpayer money. Two, we would get a far better product in the way of children having educated minds and good character formation. Three, that would allow for mothers to stay home and homeschool their kids full time. You wouldn't believe how much money on average is spent per child in the public education system. If the secretary of the Department of Education wants to tell us to trust teachers, I say, let's have more parents who are their children's teachers. Checkmate. And if they say, well, you're not qualified, you're not an expert, I say, shut up. How did your experts become experts? Do you mean to tell me some 21-year-old fresh out of some teacher's college is an expert because she took some classes? No, no. What these teachers are expert in is obeying you because they're slaves. These teachers are slaves. Pedagogue. Pedagogo in the Greek. These teachers are slaves. They're experts in obeying orders from their betters. And you think you're their betters. And you think we're their inferiors because if we're their inferiors and they're your inferiors, then we're really way below your contempt. It's a modern day plantation system. And this is also part of why the Democrats are for importing teeming masses of illegal immigrants from South America because they want to bring in more obedient and cheaper labor to replace us. We're getting a little too uppity here, apparently. And it's not just the white folk. It's not actually all that important what color your skin is. The cruel game that is played by these masters is to pit us against each other for sport. All the while, they take all the cream off the top and they give us the skim milk to fight over. And what I'm not saying is I'm against capitalism, not in the least, not in the least. But I am for a free market where there are equal and even weights and measures because God's word commands that. God's word requires that. I am not for unequal weights and measures because God says that those are detestable to him. And so I am for equal opportunity. What we have right now is not free market capitalism. What we have right now is an oligarchy. We have a gerontocracy as well. Look at the average age of a member of Congress. We need term limits and we need school choice. We need to abolish the murder of unborn children once and for all. No fault divorce needs to be undone. Abolish the welfare system. Say absolutely no welfare for illegal immigrants. That alone would probably go a long ways to stopping the flow of illegal immigrants. Stop also building public schools and big expensive office buildings. How about employers give that money back to their employees to build houses closer to where they work or to be able to have the technology for more remote meetings? How about you treat your employees like they're free men instead of slaves by another name, indentured servants. I'm telling you people, I'm telling you, <laughs> this is deep stuff and it's disturbing and it's unsettling and it's uncomfortable and it's frightening in many ways. But what's more frightening? To begin to realize that this is actually our reality, that we are all chained up, most of us, and those of us who aren't might as well be. It's like herd immunity 
except we've been immunized against freedom and self-determination. What's more frightening to realize that that is the way of it or for it to be true and we had no idea. We didn't know about this. All the while, kids are committing suicide. They're killing themselves. Little boys and little girls killing themselves because they're despairing of life itself. I would prefer not to, they say, at a certain point, about life itself. God forbid that that go unremarked on, uninterrupted on our watch. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Speaking of my family, like I said, it's my son John's birthday. Today, everybody's up now, it sounds like. They weren't when I started, but now they are. And we have church to go to, donuts to eat, as always. Thank you for listening. Do check out Weapons of Mass Instruction. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You won't be sorry that you did, but you might be uncomfortable. That's okay. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.